the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, why you wanted your MTV. In this message oversaturated era, marketers have to pick an audience and super serve them, says branding guru Alan Goodman. He teaches a marketing masterclass at Macaulay Honors College. At MTV, where he developed the logo and the iconic animation IDs, Goodman says he saw the network as more than just a music video channel and identified the audience as young people and proposed to reach them by offering programs that would annoy their parents. The campaign for Nickelodeon, he says, took the kids' network from the lowest rated basic cable network to the highest in nine months without changing programming. One tool he used in his Nick campaign was Doo-Wop, which people told him was a mistake because it was out of style. Kids responded to it, he says, because it was different. I'm really happy that you guys are taking this course and learning what you'll learn here, and you have uh, a wonderful teacher to guide you through. We've known each other a very, very long time, and we've done many, many different things, as Bob alluded to, over our careers, where we, when we first met, I wasn't in television yet, you weren't in television yet, uh, all of those things were a long way off. And it's just a, an example of uh, if you keep your minds nimble and you keep your eyes open to what's going on, you can have a long career in something that is generally regarded as something for young people, certainly people much younger than, than Bob and I are. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot has changed in the world of writing since, since uh, I was first coming up. I started originally as a newspaper reporter, learning how to tell stories uh, in the newspaper. I was, um, uh, I was a general assignment reporter, but they sent me out to, to do a lot of interviews with people who didn't want to be interviewed, who were either shy of the press or didn't feel they had something to say. Apparently, I had a, a way of drawing people out. And uh, that kind of became my specialty for this newspaper I was working for. And uh, it was just the first iteration of what I would do for my career, which was tell stories across a wide range of media. A lot of things from that era have died out. There are a lot of new opportunities that exist for you guys. But I think one of the things that Bob alluded to in, in just what he was discussing before we got started the difficulty of getting your message out these days because there are so many people competing for the attention of audiences. What are the things that you do? I learned right away that the first thing to ask, the first question to ask was, who am I writing for? Even before I went out to interview the people that I interviewed, who am I writing for? And those kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that have helped me throughout my career, knowing who my audience is. It's something that we do a lot. I've worked a lot in advertising. We do a lot in advertising related to consumer products. In the music business, a little less so. TV, very much so. I have a couple of uh, colleagues here from the theater world, uh, new friends of mine, uh, and I'm just starting to learn that a lot of this doesn't get done in the theater world. They, there's very little information that uh, playwrights, that theater owners, that producers have about the people in the seats in the theaters. And what were they doing last Saturday that's different from what they're doing tonight? They really don't, they haven't developed that information yet. It's really kind of critical if you want to be a successful communicator. So regardless of what it is that you do, however you determine your website is going to come out, whatever the, the content uh, ends up being, you really have to think about who am I aiming at this for? It's much more important today than it ever was before because of how cacophonous the world is with messaging. You have to pick an audience 
and super serve those people and really try to make sure you, you communicate with them. So, um, uh, you know, it's funny that I'm doing this. I, just, I recently sold, a, this month, sold a house on Long Island that was my house for 30 years. And uh, many things stored in this house from like a lot longer ago than that, including a box I found of my old college papers mm -hmm. that I had done. And it was funny to read through them and see the comments by the professors because the, uh, the comments were uniform throughout my four years of college and grad school as well. Uh, and they, it was something like, you're a really perplexing writer. There are passages of beauty and brilliance and insight interspersed with some of the sloppiest, messiest, least well-formed crap I've ever read. And I read that, and I thought, mm, sounds like me. Uh, and uh, not surprising that I wound up in TV, where there is room for that entire span. But anyway, let's try to, I'd, I'd like to start out with, um, uh, supposedly I can do this. We'll see if it actually works. Uh, a couple of examples of things from my life in the past. We'll see what happens here. play that and I realized that this group is probably too young to remember when MTV played music videos. Am I right about that? On the verge? Okay. Well, this was the first thing that anybody ever saw when MTV came on for the very first moment that it was in the world. And the story behind this piece was also became the iconic image of MTV. They still hand, hand out a mood man for their video music awards every year. And that became kind of the, the iconic image of the network and the iconic sound of it, too. And neither one of those things was supposed to be, was supposed to happen. When we launched the network, we had so little money and our resources were so low that we didn't have money to pay animators to make soundtracks. We had barely enough to pay them to make the images that they would make for us. So we recorded five pieces of music that we owned, that was one of the five pieces of music. The reason why there was that idea was created and why we actually in those, in those years used so much NASA footage is that NASA footage, whoops, NASA footage is free. <laughs> we own it because we're citizens of the United States. So for, for the cost of a dub, you can get it for free. So we got all of this footage for free, and then we manipulated it with animation. So this was just a 10-second version of this, was just one piece of animation of many that we were going to run on the network. And about a week and a half before we launched the network, somebody says to me, what are you going to do for the top of the hour? And I said, uh, I'll tell you as soon as you tell me what a top of the hour is. And it turned out that, they, just like radio, because MTV worked a lot like radio at the time, there was going to be a 30-second spot at the top where the VJ talked over it and said what was coming up that hour. You're going to see this video and this video and this video. 
And I said, I don't have anything that's 30 seconds. I've only made 10 second pieces of animation. And they said, well, you better come up with something because we're going to have a top of the hour. So I went through everything that we had made. And I realized that of the five pieces of music that we had made, this is the only one I could loop. I could keep running the same thing over and over and it would sound fine. And of all the pieces of animation that we had made, this was the only one I could loop because I could just keep replaying the flags in the flag. And so by default, this became the iconic image and sound of MTV, which just goes to show that no matter what I tell you about branding and how much you can think about this stuff to begin with, sometimes you just luck out. You know, it just happens. So uh, here's another Nick, 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 so getting any closer to anybody in this audience? Or, uh, OK, good. Uh, um, the way we came up with this, well, first of all, Nickelodeon existed since 1979. I got involved in 84 with my partner to kind of remake the network. Uh, and just to, t to show you what you can do with point of view, attitude, tone of voice, that sort of thing, in nine months, we took Nickelodeon from being the lowest rated basic cable network on the dial to the highest rated basic cable network with not a single change in programming. All we did was change the tone of voice of the network with things like this. Uh, the, um, no one knew what a Nickelodeon was. I'm sure nobody in this audience knows what a Nickelodeon is. You know what a Nickelodeon is? You used to drop a nickel in a machine and look at it like this and turn a crank and a little movie would play. But certainly kids the age of Nickelodeon's audience, Nickelodeon's audience had no idea what it, what it was. When we were remaking the network, we thought about changing it to something that might be more relevant to them, something that might be a little bit more in their world. And with a little bit of research, we discovered, no, kids don't have any idea what a Nickelodeon is, but they like saying it. It's a fun word. It's a fun noise to come out of your mouth. So we did that. We also came up with all the, the sound of the network was doo-wop, which everyone told us, you're out of your minds. Why would you do doo-wop? Doo-wop is from the 1950s. It's 40 years later. It's completely irrelevant to kids. They don't hear that. It doesn't mean anything to them. Why would you do that? And to be honest, the reason was that uh, this group of singers is a group called the Jive Five. They were friends of ours, mm -hmm. and we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, What's, every, every time I think of Nickelodeon, I think of that Well, sometimes, and I, and, I, and I appreciate you saying that, because it's very, very important always, I think, to stand out. If everybody else is over here doing what all kids think is cool right now, I want to be doing something over here because I want to stand out. So it's incredibly important, I think, to keep your eye on what's going on, but to know when to ignore it and go in a different direction because you have a better chance of people noticing you. So uh, that's kind of where we start. And what I want to talk about now, uh, you know, we're talking about storytelling and how you tell stories and how you tell stories in a new world. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story about my needing a new winter coat. Uh, I lived in Tribeca at the time. This is a view. This is now the High Line Park. Then it was abandoned railroad lines. But this was the view north uh, on a snowy uh, winter's day 
when I lived in Tribeca and I wanted to go out and buy a coat. And uh, so I threw on my scarf and I headed out. And uh, for the purposes of this presentation, uh, the part of me will be played by internet icon Keanu Reeves. Uh, uh, I, headed, I headed north in the direction of Soho. And of course, along came with me my wife. And, uh, and uh, we, decided, we started looking in stores. We started looking for coats. And we looked at, we found uh, leather coats. And we found parkas. And then we found more leather coats, because there are surprisingly few images of coats on racks on the internet that I could steal. And we were getting very frustrated because we just didn't find, we couldn't find anything that looked good on me or anything that I liked, anything that seemed appropriate. And my wife was getting frustrated and I was getting frustrated. So finally I said to her, you know, honey, why should we both waste an entire afternoon? Why don't you go back home? I'll keep looking, I'll see what I can find. So I said goodbye to my wife and she turned and waved goodbye. And uh, I went on looking and I, and I, it was, uh, it was a frustrating afternoon. You can see how my frustration was growing uh, as I continued to walk and look for coats. I, I sniffed the flowers. That didn't help. I tried to throw myself in front of a cab. Poor Keanu. This guy can't walk through the village without people buying. <laughs> Poor bastard. And then suddenly it dawned on me what I was doing wrong and why I wasn't finding a coat. And I wonder if there's anybody here who might like to guess. And I'll tell you, in 15 minutes, I had a coat. And I'm wondering if there's anybody here who can guess what I was doing wrong and what I changed to help me buy a coat. Sorry? <laughs> Did I have Yelp at the time? No, Yelp was just the sound we made when we couldn't find coats. There was no Yelp at the time. No, it didn't have to do with my wife. She was always, she did a very good job addressing me most of the time. But uh, no, it didn't have anything to do with her leaving. Yeah. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with coat commercials. And this is one instance where there's not a single coat commercial that would have had an effect on me. Didn't have anything to do with my choice. Yeah. They were the widest variety of coats that you could imagine, probably more variety than I could deal with. Yeah. Did you know what you wanted? Did I know? I wanted a coat. <laughs> Did I need more information than that? Yeah. Or any specific coat? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I stayed. I didn't move one block from where I was. Yeah. I find frequently indecision comes from having too many options, and that's maybe a key to where we're going with this. But you know what? We don't have to settle it now. We'll come back to it, okay? I promise we'll come back to it. But first, and, par and part of the way we'll find my route here is through understanding what I mean by branding, which is very different from what a lot of other people mean by it. And um, a lot of the confusion comes, I think, from things like this. What is a brand? I mean, a brand initially was this hot piece of iron that you stamped into your cow so that everybody know that's, that's your cow, not his cow, right? And so that's literally a brand. And 
from that, we get the idea that my mark on my network or my logo at the top of my website or something like that is my brand. It's not your brand. That's not what I keep hitting this thing. Maybe if I put it there or back away or something. Uh, I would say that's not the brand, but that is what a lot of people take for branding. Uh, you hear a lot in the branding business these days about telling your story. And your story might be interesting to you, but your story might not be interesting to your consumer. You know, we started this with a conversation of who is my audience, right? Who am I trying to sell to as being the most important question to ask. So my story, my brand story may not be relevant to the people that I'm trying. It could be a great story, but it might not be relevant to the people who I'm trying to talk to. Uh, then we have this. Do I have to press it or maybe I have to press it? The Flintstones has been brought to you by Winston, America's best-selling, best-tasting filter cigarette. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. And that's one of the reasons why my generation is so fucked up. Our, our cartoon heroes sold us cigarettes. Uh, jingles, you know, figure, figure prominently in uh, the expression of your brand, the, uh, you know, maybe the, the catchy tune or the lyrics remind you of the brand, but that's not your brand. That is also not your brand. Uh, then there are these slogany things that people do. Uh, this I actually clipped out of an article in Advertising Age magazine where um, they were talking about shitty branding. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you don't really see that much critical stuff in, in those kinds of industry publications. But uh, Lifetime had just redone their mark. I guess that's supposed to be an L in that circle there, if you look real hard. And they can't, and Lifetime, they come up with your life, your time. Well, you have to, wonder how many vice presidents were in the room when they approved that, right? Uh, but again, I, I don't think this says anything to anybody. Uh, and I would also say that that's not your brand. Um, part of what I do is uh, in this presentation is walk people through my brain and how I do this stuff. I read a lot of books about the brain. I figure as somebody whose job it is to um, convince people of things, to persuade them to choose me instead of you, you know, my thing instead of the other guy's thing, that I should know a little bit about how brains work. And the interesting thing is we know more about brains today, uh, 20, after 20, 25 years of uh, MRIs and brain scans and that, than, that sort of thing, than 100 years of psychotherapy. You know, they can really look inside the brain and see what's lighting up and know what's communicating, what's triggering responses, that sort of thing. So I read a lot about that kind of stuff, very interested in it. This is a book, uh, one, of my, uh, um, one of my books of the Bible, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Al Reese and Jack Trout. We'll talk a little more in detail about what they teach in this book. This came out in 1981, the same year that MTV launched. I have probably read this book every other year since. Uh, it's an incredibly important book as far as I'm concerned, especially in today's era. And this was written well before the internet age, but especially in today's era where there is so much over-communication. How do you find a slot for what you make or for what you offer in a person's brain? 
And that's one of the things they, they teach in this book. Uh, I also like, uh, has anybody here taken the Robert McKee story structure course at all? Uh, you have, I'm not surprised. Uh, Robert McKee has taught many, many Hollywood uh, television and screenwriters not how to write a screenplay. It's not one of those things where he tells you on page 21 you have to set up this and by page 36 you have to get... He doesn't teach that way. He teaches you about uh, what triggers emotions. He teaches um, what happens when I make this choice instead of that choice. Uh, and we'll, again, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, um, but he's another one who I revere. This book is, I think it's out of print now, but um, this is a book called The Responsive Chord by Tony Schwartz. Uh, I, is this where I have the example? I can't remember where I put it. Yeah, so this is, Tony Schwartz made this. other or we must die vote for president johnson on november 3rd the stakes are too high for you to stay home so uh, do, do people recognize that have you learned about this commercial and the importance it holds in our culture uh this was uh, during for those who don't this was the 1968 presidential election between uh, 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 lyndon johnson and barry goldwater uh, the entire commercial was based on an inadvertent comment that Goldwater made. He was asked by an interviewer, would he rule out using atomic bombs in Vietnam? And what he said was, I don't rule out anything. And on that, the slimmest of, <laughs> of, of excuses to create division between the candidates, uh, uh, Tony Schwartz, who was working for uh, Lyndon Johnson, came up with this commercial. It was the first time anybody had done anything like this before in politics, where they used images, sound, uh, a, an extreme point of view to communicate a nonverbal message. Goldwater never said he was gonna drop bombs. This commercial doesn't say anybody's gonna drop bombs. It doesn't mention the word Vietnam. I mean, not, none of that is going on in this commercial. What this commercial is saying loud and clear is that if we elect Barry Goldwater, he's gonna drop bombs on our little two-year-old children. That's clearly what it says, if you look at what they've done there. Um, many people credit this commercial with getting Lyndon Johnson elected. Uh, and very shortly after he was elected, he, he immediately upped the offensive uh, <laughs> In Vietnam, so he was no peace candidate by any means, but it was a it was an extremely effective commercial, uh, and we'll talk a little more about um, uh, about um, Tony Schwartz and what he means by the responsive chord and why it's important to us. 
there's one other thing that I use. Uh, I was talking to, uh, I, was, I was seeing a shrink for a while, and I was talking to him one day about what I regard as the only reasons why people make any choices at all in life. And those things are, you know, my sex, my food, my shelter, my family, uh, my job, my status were the six things I, I riffed. And maybe some of you guys have studied this. He says, oh, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I said, what? He said, it's, you, you basically have, you know, you missed a few, like search for beauty, that's right. But it, you're basically, you've, you've, you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I said, I made that up. He says, well, you made up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But uh, if you look into this, you start to see that there are urges that we need to satisfy, things that we need to fulfill in life that are common to all of us and common to across cultures. And I would argue in some measure common to the lowliest slug on the ground. Uh, there are just things that as organisms we need. And I believe that in branding, in marketing, in, in communicating, whatever it is I'm doing, the closer I can get to touching on things that are uh, elemental to all of us, the better I'm going to be at, at communicating my message. So, uh, so let's just go back. I mentioned positioning, right, the, uh, the uh, recent Trout book. Uh, and the other ones, we'll take them sort of one by one so you understand what I mean. What is positioning? Well, positioning, it, it involves finding that slot in the brain that no one else occupies, that you can occupy, or it involves stealing from somebody else a position that they have that only you can own. And um, they, do, they did a lot of research in the writing of what was first articles for the magazine and then uh, became that book uh, about the way the brain learns information, the way it stores inf information, the amount it can store. And they posit that in any category, regardless of what that category is, you have room for only seven of those things. And once you hit seven, it's very, very difficult to remember number eight. And we can actually uh, test this out. Uh, one or two uh, soft drinks, different soft drinks, go. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. You get to seven and you top out. But when you think about that aisle in the supermarket with all the sodas, it's the biggest, widest, brightest, most filled. Uh, you know, you didn't hit ginger ale. What about root beer? You know, I mean, there's a million sodas. And we, don't, we can't think of more than seven. It's why, thank goodness, these things store phone numbers now. Because it used to be really, really easy to remember a phone number. Because if I was calling Los Angeles, it was area code 213. If I was calling New York, it was area code 212. All I had to remember was the seven numbers that followed it. Now phone numbers are 10 numbers long, and no one can remember them. Don't feel bad. It's because brains can't do it. They just can't do it. Right? So that's, an, you know, when you learn these things and you learn that you need to be one of seven or you're, you might as well be nowhere, you start to learn some other things. For instance, um, there was a time when 7-Up was the number one lemon-lime soft drink in the world. Now Sprite is. But at the time, 7-Up was number one. 
But if you compare cola sales to lemon-lime sales, it's about that order of magnitude. You can be the number, so much cola is consumed that when you get to lemon-lime, you're that size instead of Coca-Cola. So what did the guys from 7-Up do? They wanted to grow. How do you grow when you're number one? They realized that if they jumped onto the cola ladder, if there was some way to jump onto the cola ladder, they would grow because the cola ladder was so much more powerful than the lime, lemon-lime ladder. And what somebody came up with, and you're, none of you will remember this, but for a long time, many, many years, 7-Up's slogan became the Uncola. And that was enough to jump them onto the cola ladder because they realized even the biggest cola drinkers in the world want an alternative every once in a while. They want to drink something else. If we can be that something else all the time, if we can make them think us instead of anything else, we'll, we'll grow. And they grew huge. I mean, it was, and anyone who was alive in that era, they can't tell you any of the next 10 slogans that 7up came up with. It was that important for them. Uh, here's another example of positioning. Uh, if I were to say to you, hey, let's all go off to Mexico, you might have some sketchy ideas of what that might mean and what a, a trip to Mexico might entail. Maybe there are stories you've heard about the cartel or, or crime or something like that. Or I might say, how about a vacation in the Yucatan? Well, you might not be too clear on the Yucatan and where that is. But if I say, what about the Mayan Riviera? Well, we know the Mayans were a grand, vast civilization, and we know what the Riviera is. It's, it's beautiful. And they have, within the past 25 years, rebranded the coast of the Yucatan as the Mayan Riviera, and they put up all these gorgeous hotels and resorts. It's an absolutely gorgeous. This is Tulum, the view from Tulum. When I first visited Tulum in the 1970s, you would pitch your hammock between two trees for 60 cents, and uh, there was no place to go to the bathroom. And now uh, it's a beautiful resort. So that was all a result of positioning. It would, they, somebody just figured out how to name this something that triggered beautiful images in your mind. And the rest is history. So McKee is the story structure guy. He's the guy that Bob and I have both studied with who teaches you about writing. And what he teaches is that the, the world and our lives and our stories in our lives are about making choices. It's, it, you, you'll, it, we all start off, all of, whether it's fiction, whether it's our own lives, we start off in a direction, right? You all had hopes and dreams and plans at some point in your life, and you start off in that direction, you hit an obstacle, right? So what do you do when you hit an obstacle? There's a few different things you can do. You can uh, change your goal, right, which allows you to go around the obstacle, or you can crash through that obstacle if you're strong enough, but it, it, life is a, is a matter of making choices. And all of those choices that we make through our lives are based somewhat on, on our chemistry, somewhat on our upbringing, somewhat on our environment, but it's all about making choices. And uh, again, I like people to choose me instead of the other guy, so I try to know as much as I can about the way people make choices and why. Uh, the responsive chord that we mentioned, uh, we can illustrate that this way. 
So every, every person in this room right now, I guarantee you, is their, your hearts are starting to beat a little harder. Your blood pressure is imperceptibly edging up a little bit. Uh, let's get off that. Um, this, is the, this is another one we'll talk about. But uh, I might as well mention it now. This is a very, very controversial cover of Time Magazine a few years ago about uh, a woman who nursed her son. Uh, I think, was he five or six or ten? I can't remember what the... He was well past the age that is typically regarded as the cutoff point for nursing. But she had a point of view, and, uh, you know, and it was hotly discussed uh, in the press. The, every single morning show was talking about it. And this was the cover of Time magazine for one reason only. They knew it would get a rise out of people. There's something about this image that forces a reaction from us. Just as that cop pointing his gun uh, or that siren that you hear, there is something that is triggered that we can't control, that's common to all of us, and that Tony Schwartz called uh, the responsive chord. He used that thinking in creating that mushroom cloud ad that he did, that the image of a child juxtaposed with, uh, with an image of an atom bomb going off would trigger an emotion. And that's obviously what we're always trying to do with anything that we write and any communication that we're trying to have with anybody is trigger an emotion with them. Uh, last one. I mean, come on. Take a look at that. Who, who can resist? I mean, the, 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 the feelings come out of you as soon as you see. I love hats that look like that. Uh, so, so anyway, um, this brings us back to uh, just some other products I want to talk about. Um, so it's not all about me. Uh, 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 Tide, uh, I, I haven't looked at their website in a long while. But I'll bet you that when you go to Tide's website, you don't see a picture of a box and you don't see a pile of uh, laundry powder. I'm betting that what you find is images of mothers and children. Okay, just a, a guess that I would make, that that's what's on their website. Uh, and I think that's because the, the real brand, Tide's real brand, is your mother used it, and it worked great, and it still works just as great. Okay? I think it's really more about tying generations together and feelings of safety and comfort and home. Uh, what about this? Anybody want to guess what? I would I might suggest as the brand of McDonald's. I don't think it has anything to do with hamburger. Yeah, go ahead. Well I know red triggers uh, <laughs> Well it's interesting you mentioned that. The there there are and this is another one of those responsive chord things. It's so weird. But orange, red, yellow, the reasons why those colors are part of every uh, fast food joint is that those colors make you feel hungry. It's, I mean, you're absolutely right about that, yeah. I was going to say the Familiarity is key to it, yeah. And the reason why I chose this one from Japan is that uh, I think McDonald's brand is that no matter where you go in the world, it's going to taste the same to you, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be familiar. It's going to be comfortable. It's not going to be good, <laughs> but it's not going to surprise you in ways that are revolting. Right. Uh, 
Anybody here know who this is? Not asking the people over here. You do, okay. So there's a couple who know this, who this guy is? Okay. Uh, this is a man called Walter, Walter Cronkite. He used to be the most trusted man in America. He delivered the news at seven o'clock at night. Yeah. Sorry? I'm so JFK. Yes, he was the, he was, yes. If you've seen those uh, documentaries about uh, JFK, he was, he was on for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And after all of that, he realized he had never put on his jacket because he sort of raced out onto the set. And you'll see every, in all of the images from that day, he's wearing just a, a, a shirt and tie. Uh, but he was considered the most trusted man in America. He did the evening. Can you imagine any newsman anywhere today being considered the most trusted man in America? But that back then, he was considered, in fact, so much so that when he went to Vietnam to report on Vietnam and came back and told the American people that uh, from his standpoint, this was unwinnable, that this was, a, you know, it was a mess over there. Uh, that's when Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for re-election. He, uh, the, the, the details are lost to history. It's disputed whether he said it when he was watching the news, whether he said it in a meeting the next day, whether he said it to one of his trusted advisors at some point. But uh, what everyone knows he said uh, is if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. And it was at that moment that he decided he would not run for re-election. So, um, so what is common to all of these? The, the, so you, you trust him would be my, the way I would express the brand for Walter Cronkite. You trust him. So what is common to all of those? Yeah. Brand stability. Brand stability. Uh, but in terms of the way I phrase them, so it works just like your mother, it did for your mother, it will be familiar to you, you know, you trust him. You, your emotions, you. I think what's common to all of them is you. And what I think all of these marketers and communicators have done is they've, what they've, they've figured out how to touch you. They know who you are, and they figured out how to touch you. And the closer they can get to you, the closer they can link their brand to you, uh, the, uh, the stronger those ties will be. Um, I have a few examples of this from my life in marketing. But before we get to that, I still don't have my coat. And look how sad I look. And I've grown a beard since the last photos of me. Anybody want to guess what I changed about my search for a coat? And how I could inst almost instantly, after changing my approach, find the coat that I bought? We'll come back to it. Don't worry. Okay, so uh, let's just talk about MTV for a bit. Uh, there was a, a time, well, actually well into my years of, of association with them, when uh, the phone rang, rang on a, at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and the caller said, I'm calling from Judy McGrath's office, please hold. And Judy at the time was the chairman of MTV. So at the time, I knew that if my phone rang at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, uh, and it was Judy McGrath's office, 
that I would be working that weekend. Just some sense I had that she needed something. So she gets on the phone with me and she says, I'm giving a presentation to Tom, her boss, on Tuesday about the branding for MTV films and Nickelodeon movies. I said, okay, uh, fine, what can I do for you? She said, well, you can tell me what that is. <laughs> so I said, all right, give me a little time. So over the weekend, I wrote her a 60-page presentation that wound up with uh, the, the revelation that there was no MTV films and there was no Nickelodeon movies. There was just MTV and there was just Nickelodeon. And those things across platforms, across brands, across products that we might put out had to remain consistent. And I had never expressed it this way before until that presentation, but I explained what to me MTV meant. And now it means nothing, it's just another thing. <laughs> I mean, it's sad to, to people like us because we, we had a lot to do with making it big and important and, and uh, you know, addicting to people. But um, I, I said, to me, what MTV was, was your parents' worst nightmare. Whatever they were doing throughout their history that has ever worked related to your parents' worst nightmare. So when it was the Jay Giles band playing My Angel is a Centerfold, which was a big video in the early days, that was your parent. The uh, real world, those over-sexed, over-tattooed, over-drunk kids all living in a house together, your parents' worst nightmare. Teen Mom, Jersey Shore, you could go. In fact, I was actually the first person to suggest that MTV could be something other than music videos because I thought it was the youth channel. I thought it was a channel that, regardless of, of topic or subject matter, belong to a demographic, belong to an age. And this is an age that we all pass through. This is something that I learned in my readings about the brain and how the brain works. There's a reason why probably everyone in this room passed through a time where the stupidest people on the planet were your mother and father, right? Because you need to experience that. You need to feel that on some level in order to separate. Eventually you have to leave their house and in order to do that, you have to start to feel the confidence to know that they don't know everything and that there's something for you to learn and something for you to, to, to discover. So this channel was for that, that specific age group. And so anything we could do that pissed off parents, that was the right direction for us to be in. Uh, similarly with Nickelodeon, uh, Nickelodeon in its early days had been this medicine-y, good for you, you know, eat your vegetables, kids, kind of a channel. Kids hated it, kids didn't watch it. The only thing they liked was this show, you can't do that on television because they would dump green slime on, on, on grown-ups' heads. So that, that was the one thing that they liked. So it was given to Jerry Layborn um, to run. She had been the program director. She then took over the network. And she put together a little group of like five or six people who she trusted. We all went to her house in Montclair to invent the new Nickelodeon one Saturday afternoon. And through the living room where we were working, scampered her eight-year-old son, uh, uh, Sam. And Sam had some typical eight-year-old concern and complaint and worry. And he, he goes off angry. 
And uh, Jerry said, boy, it's tough to be a kid. And that little phrase, it was like a light bulb went off. Because as a grown-up, that's not something that comes naturally to your mind, that it's tough to be a kid. You think it's tough to be a grown-up because you've got car payments and school payments and, and a loan on your house and a job you got to go to. and you, you, know, you, you have responsibilities. It's tough to be a grown-up. But think about it from the kid's point of view. Kids live in a world where they didn't make the rules. And they got to go to school and they got to do what the teacher says and they got to do what the parents say and they got to go to bed at night when they don't want to go to bed. And what do you mean I got to hang up my clothes? I take them off, they land on the floor. Tomorrow when I need them, I know exactly where they are. What do you, you know, why do I need to, makes no sense to clean up a mess. Why would I clean up a mess? That's not fun. So we kind of decided, we kind of decided that Nickelodeon would be that one place that would exist from a kid's point of view. It would be for kids, from a kid's point of view, all rules out the window, right? And I think that's why we succeeded. Again, it's very sad that today Nickelodeon is, you know, down here somewhere, because they stopped, at some point along the way, they stopped loving kids. I mean, they just don't love kids anymore. They don't see what they do as being a service for kids or fulfilling some need for kids. They look at themselves now as a place where how much more SpongeBob and Dora the Explorer can we cram down people's throats? You know, that's really what's, what's happened over there. And what's the result? The result is the audience goes away and finds other things to do. So, uh, you know, I'm going to skip. This is getting kind of, I'm going to skip a couple of things here. Um, um, Bravo, okay. Um, Bravo did a show called uh, uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, which was Bravo's first hit. And the result of that is everything else that they have done since has lined up with one of the uh, categories that were covered in Queer Eye, whether it's grooming, fashion, you know, all of that, those are the cooking, those are the things that Bravo does now. And they actually, and they've done a really good job of understanding their audience and defining it. And if you talk to them, they, they, they call their audience Will and Grace. Their audience is Will and Grace. Gay men and the women who like them. You know, is that's, that's who they program to. And they're very focused on that, and they know exactly who they're programming to. And they've had one hit after another, as long as that hit is the, the Real Housewives of blank. <laughs> Which, I think it's something like 60 episodes a week or more of that, of some version of that show <laughs> or what they program. Um, so, you know, the other, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, so here's the thing, you know, we're in a new world now where uh, there are all kinds of uh, digital outlets for your work and for your identity and for the things that you want to post and the information that you want to convey to people. And all of those things, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Uh, we'll get to this in a second. Stop, don't, don't look at the screen. Uh, <laughs> sometimes these things run away from me. Uh, the point I want to make, make about all the websites is you might find that your message is different depending on, you are different depending on where you're posting. And I just know for myself, Facebook is about family 
and about career to some degree and about just staying in touch with people who have known me pretty much all my lives. Twitter I use for jokes. You know, I use it for comedy. Uh, it's a great format, I think, for one-liners. Uh, Instagram is more about just things that catch my attention that I want to uh, uh, trade and, and share with other people. So I'm actually a different person depending on where I'm posting. I would never do anything that I do on Instagram, on Facebook, because it's just not what people expect from me when I post on Facebook. So it's an interesting thing to think about that you have to, again, it's knowing who you're talking to, but where you're talking to them, what you are when you're talking to them, how you express yourself, all of those things are things you need to be thinking about all the time these days. Baloney, okay? Uh, Baloney hit a rough spot. Baloney has always been the favorite lunch of children all across America. But Baloney hit a rough spot. Uh, Baloney hit a uh, there was a, a time when Baloney sales were plummeting because everybody wanted to eat better, right? So I actually, uh, this, there was an article a couple of years ago in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about food technologists and how they engineer food now that's disgusting and horrible for you, but so addicting that you can't stay away from it. Apparently the cheese doodle is the, is the paradigm of the best kind of junk food ever invented because it's got that perfect crunchiness when you crunch into it, and meltiness, right? Now how do a cheese doodle kind of melts in your mouth? There's first the crunch, then the melt. The powder, the cheese powder, they, how many different kinds of cheese powder and grinds of cheese powder they went through so they found the perfect, they endless amounts of money spent on engineering this crap that will, you know, and, and the, the article was a lot about the guys who make it and how horrible they feel. Because they know they're killing people with this shit. So, so, uh, but there was a, a passage in that article that fascinated me, and it was about the rebranding of baloney. And I don't know if anybody read the article or remembers the article, but, but baloney hit this rough spot where their sales were permitting, and they brought in all of these people to consult and to think about it and test groups, and maybe if we change this, or less fatty, or what, you know, everything they could think about, they, they tried to do. Uh, and then they brought in somebody who said, you know, maybe we're trying to solve the wrong problem. Maybe the problem isn't baloney. Maybe we don't have to make baloney different. Maybe there's a different problem to solve. And so he looked at the psychology, and this is where I get into this stuff about the brain and emotions that are triggered in all of us. They started to talk to mothers about how they feel about their children and how they feel about their career as mothers and how they feel about how, they, how well they do the job. And they found that mothers are racked with guilt over lunch because they don't know how to give something to their children that their children will like. They know that the lunchboxes, either everything gets thrown out or it gets traded with kids for other things. They feel horrible about it, that kids don't eat the lunches that they pack. So the technologists at, at uh, Oscar Mayer, because, <laughs> you know, they're not, I mean, it's not food. So, so <laughs> 
They go to work on this and they start bringing in all kinds of things into conference rooms and they're chopping it up and carving it up and trying to figure out what they can do. And they realize that there are actually two problems that they can solve. They can solve the mother's problem about guilt and they can solve the children's problem about control of their lives. Because this is, kids, like I said before, related to Nickelodeon, kids don't make the rules, right? Kids are in a world that, that are, are, all the rules are made by, by other people. How do you give kids control, and how do you give parents, mothers especially, the feeling that they're doing something nice for their children? And what they came up with was this. And the, the, actually, the biggest problem they had with these little lunch kits uh, is uh, not the shelf life. That This stuff could sit forever and not go bad. The, <laughs> the problem they had was that the container cost more than anything inside. <laughs> but these Lunchables were, I mean, they started flying off the shelf. Mothers feel, felt great because they knew their kids loved them. Kids loved it because maybe you want two slices of bologna between your crackers. Maybe you want one. Maybe you don't like cheese. Maybe you like the cheese and you don't like the bologna. Kids felt so much control because of how they could assemble them. So then, of course, they start branching out, uh, uh, Oscar Mayer does, and they come up with, oh, you know, we'll, we'll put in water, right? Because the water is that then. Parents will feel better about giving something that has water. But then there's all, you know, the, the, the tropical punch powder and the candy. And I mean, the only thing really that was missing, uh, this one, this was actually, this pepperoni pizza one, uh, was actually written up somewhere as the most uh, health harming thing you could give your kids. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing in there. Uh, and really, the only thing missing, you know, was the... They should have provided that if they were really thinking. Um, so, so where, do, you know, where does this bring us? We, we all have to come up with our own brand. We all have to figure out our own message and what's that going to be. And as we were saying before, as you mentioned, the Nickelodeon theme stands out because nobody else is doing that. Nobody else is hearing that. We all have to come to grips with the fact that if we want to stand out, if we want to have a career, if we want to have a long career, we got to figure out what that thing is that we offer that nobody else offers. And maybe that's something that changes over your life. But I think if you are alert and if you're always assessing your point of view and your importance, you can continue to, to find that. So. It's time to buy a coat, and I need help. I need help. I'm clean shaven again. Um, anybody out there, after all we've discussed about how it's about being audience-centric and understanding your consumer and all of those things, any thoughts at all? I know somebody wants to yell it out. Yeah? Can you think about why you want to wear your coat? Well, I was cold. I didn't have to think about it. Nope, that's no, nope, no. Nope. I stopped trying on, what the thing I changed is I stopped trying on coats. Anybody? 
One time, I've given this presentation a bunch of times, and one time somebody guessed. And unfortunately, he guessed it at the very beginning of the presentation when, when, when I first presented the problem, which really took the steam out of it, I got to say. I, um, no, here I was, the consumers, you know, the guy preaching to all his clients, the consumer comes first. Think about who your audience is. Don't think about you, think about your buyer. And so what I did was I stopped looking at codes. I started looking at audiences. I started looking at consumers. I started looking in the windows of stores to see who was shopping there. And I found this store, Bo Brummel. They just closed the summer after many, many years in Soho. I found this store, Bo Brummel. I looked in the window and I saw uh, overweight, middle-aged, wealthy guys. And I said, okay, <laughs> that's me. I see me in there. And I walked in and there were just tons of really nice clothes. I, it became my store. I'd moved out of that neighborhood, but it became my store for many, many years. I knew the salesman very well. I'd walk in, he'd pull things my size, he'd pull things that he knew I would like and that were right for me. And the way that I knew, uh, the, an additional way that I knew that the store would be right for me is that at the time that I went in there to buy my coat, they were uh, costuming lots of television shows that were shooting in New York. And in fact, oh, here's my coat, but in fact, um, uh, beautiful Hugo Boss coat. But in fact, the, the, um, the show that they were costuming that related to me was Regis Philbin on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Then I knew I was in the store for me. Uh, and look how happy I am. Thank you. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.